Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is an exercise in communication. This is a bit of an odd cultural offering that exists on the periphery. How are you today? Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. I'm Brad Listy. Uh, I'm sitting in Los Angeles, California, and it, it's a beautiful day. It's beautiful in Los Angeles, as it has been all winter. Uh, and of course, uh, we are experiencing uh, zero precipitation yet again. Uh, we are in the middle of uh, an historic drought, the likes of which have not been seen uh, in uh, over 500 years. And the weather is lovely. <laughs> uh, in fact, the only thing, the only thing that could possibly ruin this drought is if the approximately 40 million people who live in the state of California completely run out of water. Otherwise, we're good. So... <clears throat> what else? I don't know. Uh, and to tell you the truth, I'm, uh, I'm in a bit of a hurry. It's, it's not even a bit of a hurry. It's a full-blown hurry. So I don't know if you can sense uh, the discombobulation that I'm currently experiencing mentally. If, if you can tell by the sound of my voice that I am uh, frantic. 
But the truth is that I have to go soon. I have an appointment over on the west side of town in Santa Monica, and I completely forgot about it until 10 minutes ago, which is not like me. I tend to be punctual, and I tend to be organized. But for some reason, I spaced this. And you know why I spaced it is because I didn't put it in my calendar. And if I don't put it in my technology, then it's gone. Just like phone numbers, you know? They don't exist in my brain. They exist on my machine. And if they're not on my machine, then they don't exist. But the good news is I remembered it before it happened. So I'm not going to miss it. But now I'm racing to get this done. And I have no idea what to say to you. (laughs) I'm unprepared and I am improvising. So let me just tell you what happened this morning. Okay, I'll just tell you what happened in my life. And you can can enjoy it or not. Uh, But basically I woke up. I had breakfast. And then I drove my daughter to school. She's three years old. And uh, whenever we're in the car together, I try to play music for her. We sing a little bit. I'm trying uh, to expose her to some good music as she uh, goes through her childhood. And up until now, it's been a fairly simple thing. It's mostly about dancing. She will uh, dance in her car seat or what have you. And uh, basically, it's about does she like the song or not. So we'll listen to the song. We might dance a little bit. And then she'll say, uh, I like that or I don't like that. But uh, lately, you know, as she's getting a little bit older and she's becoming more sophisticated, she has started to really pay attention to the lyrics and she's entering uh, what I think is a very literal phase. So, for example, uh, this morning we're on the way to school and uh, we're listening to the song Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. And I'm trying to teach her the words to the song. (laughs) I was drumming on the steering wheel, perhaps. I don't know what I was doing. But, you, you know, you're trying to get your kid excited and, and you're trying to have fun with your uh, child. So we're listening to Another One Bites the Dust at a, at a relatively high volume. And uh, I see in the rearview mirror as we're going that my daughter uh, suddenly becomes confused. And as I continue to sing, she starts to ask me over and over again, but daddy, who bites the dust? <laughs> who bit the dust, daddy? Who bites the dust? And uh, I was like, Freddie Mercury, honey. Freddie Mercury bit the dust. And then, you know, after that, uh, I think the next song was Dancing With Myself (laughs) by Billy Idol. And uh, my daughter then became very confused uh, about this song. Very concerned, actually, about Billy Idol and why he was dancing with himself. Why he have no friends, daddy? (laughs) Who left him? I told her it was his girlfriend. (laughs) It's hard to, it's hard to answer. Why is he dancing with himself? I think he's just overjoyed. Is it an act of uh, joy in solitude or is he secretly miserable? I have no idea. Anyway, that's what, that was my morning. That's what I just uh, decided to tell you. Uh, Was that acceptable? Do you feel entertained? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Runda Gerard. Her novel, A Map of Home, is now available from Penguin. Uh, it's really great to have her here. She was so much fun to talk with, and I have a feeling you're going to enjoy our conversation. So uh, enough with the preamble. Let's get started with it. This is Runda Gerard, and her novel, once again, is called A Map of Home. I'm in my writing room, which is um, the third bedroom in my house. Um, and it has it has all these like girly artifacts in it. It's like the one space in my house that's that other people aren't allowed to be in. When, where, um, where do you live? I live in Fresno, which is in the Central Valley. Okay. So I teach at Fresno State. I teach in the MFA program there. Okay. And um, yeah. Okay. And so when you say girly, are we talking like <laughs> it's just like pink and there's like Hello Kitty on the wall? Yes. There's like a tiny fairy door that I got in Ann Arbor when I lived there because in Ann Arbor is like this, you know, has these like whimsical kinds of things like fairy doors. And then I also have a mannequin head um with then her name Isabella sort of tattooed on her neck that I got from a like a thrift store here when I first moved here and like Wonder Woman glitter uh poster um yeah do I hear the, a, do I hear a train in the background yeah that's a train okay <laughs> I live I live by a train and well not really close but there's always a train coming through the Central Valley I think okay, okay. going from one place to another yeah all right so and you have uh, you immigrated here when you were how old I, I want to say I was reading that you your family moved from the Middle East to the states when you were in your I was I was 13 but at the time I was I thought of myself as 13 and a half so sometimes I catch myself right. like as an adult woman being like I was 13 and a half like, <laughs> you know like yeah so yeah I was I was 13 and then we moved to uh, White Plains New York in Westchester and why was um, that why White Plains um I don't I'm not sure I think my parents I, my parents were really um, interested in sort of like class grubbing, I guess. They wanted us to have like nice things. My my dad's Palestinian and grew up pretty pretty poor. And my mom grew up pretty middle class. So I think they just wanted us to have good schools to go to that were free so that they could live in like a nice place, I guess, is like the only way I can think of it. Right. right. Um, and where, and were you, where were you coming from? You, you know, like was it uh, Kuwait that you moved to the United States from? No, we actually moved initially from Kuwait to Egypt. Okay. Um, because that's the only place where we had a place to live after the, you know, the the first Gulf War. Um, so we had this beach apartment in Egypt, and we lived there for a year, even though it was in a town that was like completely deserted during the year. You know. What because it so, was because it was seasonal. 
Yeah, it was a seasonal town. <laughs> what, what's the name of this place? What's the town? It's called Mahmura, and it's um, it's like maybe ten miles sort of northeast of Alexandria. Okay, that doesn't do much. Yeah. I'm so bad at my international geography. I'm embarrassing. I'm bad at all geography. <laughs> Someone asked me if Louisiana shared a border with Texas a couple of weeks ago, and I was like. Uh, well, I, I mean, of course it does. I've driven there, but still. I was going to say, that's like the one place I could tell you because my family's from there, but that's the only reason. Your family's from Louisiana? Yeah, my parents. So I could uh, I could tell you a little bit about Louisiana geography, but, it, you know, I need to be better. Like, all I got to do is just spend some time looking at, like, a globe. Just every, you know, once a day. Just once a day. Just, just ponder the planet that I live on just to make sure that I have some sense of orientation. But It's actually, like, the most fun part of, about reading those, like, um, magazines they give you at the air, at, at, on airplanes where you're just like, oh, like there's this map at the very end of it, right? And you can just look at this map for hours. I can. Well, and the, the thing really too, fun. though, is that, you know, those maps on those airplane magazines that have like the lines that show like flight routes? Oh, yeah. That's ridiculous, though. There's like, awesome. there's like 6,000 flight routes. It's impossible to even track one of those lines. Like, it's, But it's fun to try to do when you've had a couple <laughs> of vodka tonics. <laughs> yeah. You're like an hour four of like a seven hour flight or something. But. You've spent $21 on two drinks. Um, okay. So I want to get into your childhood, um, in Kuwait and then I guess Egypt, because, uh, I don't often talk to people who grew up over there. Uh, though I have talked to, I don't either. It's really sad. Oh, really? <laughs> do you feel, I mean, when you... we find each other, we're like unicorns. We're just like, Oh, you grew up in Kuwait, but then we don't really want to talk about it that much. We're just like, yeah. Well, okay. But so like, that how... one place, <laughs> I mean, 13 and a half, you're like junior high school age. So you've been here for a long time and I'm sure this feels like home now, but um, there has to be some part of you that feels tethered to that part of the world. Oh, totally. And I don't, I actually don't feel at home you anywhere, don't. anywhere really, Yeah. which I like. I mean, I like being that way, but um, no, no, I totally feel like part of me is, you know, there. And I, I think of myself as Palestinian and I think most Palestinians just don't, they're in the diaspora and they don't really feel home anywhere. Right. It's like the, the original loss is like this, the state of statelessness. So you kind of have to get used to it and get comfortable with it. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, what's the, I mean, do you have, uh, a, an, an understanding of, um, like the Israeli Palestinian, like, do you have a big stake in that personally? Do you have like a big understanding of it? Because, uh, that's another area where I feel deficient. I mean, I have like the general outline in my head and I think I'm like most people where I'm like, I just hope people, you know, hope people can work things out. I mean, I think you're meant, you're meant to be deficient. I don't think, I, I don't think Americans are really supposed to, you know, know really truthfully like what's happening over there. Because if we did, we wouldn't want like our giant number one, like foreign aid package to go to Israel because it's basically been colonizing and settling in on other people's land, right. For decades. So my understanding of it is like, you know, I'm an anti-Zionist and, um, I'm, you know, I'm invested in there being justice there. And it's not, I mean, I think in the U S there's this narrative, which I think is going away about like, Israel being a democracy and Palestinians being like, you know, people who are trying to end that or something. Right. Whereas the truth of the matter is like, no, um, there was, you know, this, there's been this constant sort of, um, appropriation of land and, 
We can talk about this for like seven, eight hours. I know. <laughs> I know, I know. But I mean, you know, this is the way I think of it. It's like, and, and again, I, I, I don't want to speak out of my range, but it seems like, uh, you know, horrible things happened to Jewish people, obviously, in the middle part of the 20th century. They were just, right. they were Palestinians just, have been paying for it for 60 something years. So they were displaced and then they moved to Israel and then displaced people. Is that what happened? Right. Yeah. But yeah, that's. I mean, that's it in a nutshell. If, yeah, if you look at it, if the narrative is that way, then yeah, that's it in a nutshell. But they need some, I think, yeah, but they need some place to go. I mean, it's just like a mess to me, you know? It is, but now Palestinians need a place to go and they're not allowed to go back. And, um, but I think one of the best books to read about this, if you don't, if you don't know about it and you're interested in writers and writing conversations with writers and you're a writer or just someone who's into poetry or whatever, is this book called, um, my happiness bears no relation to happiness. I like, the, I like the title. It's a great title. And it's a biography of a poet called Taha Muhammad Ali, who was a poet, um, from a village that, you know, that was, um, that was bombed and then settled in, in 1948. And so you get to follow this biographer um, who's Jewish. And so she has access to all this amazing archival stuff in Israel. So she finds all this, you know, all these, um, just all this proof that, um, that his, his village was appropriated and that he did go through all this. And so then you kind of follow the story of Palestine from 1948 on, um, from from the biographer's perspective, but also with with interviews with him and his poetry, so that I think that's a good starting place if you're okay. kind of. Do you have any hope? Like, I mean, I don't mean to make you like into like the Secretary of State or something. I'm so yeah, I'm so anti like writers being cultural ambassadors, but yeah, I don't know. I just I guess I'm just I'm just curious about the whole thing. I want to see something worked out where it's not violent, you know. Um, but yeah. I, I also want there to be like some sense of justice. I don't know. It just feels like this this entire conflict has been, um, you know, a, a, a reality my entire life. It's just always kind of, been oh, yeah. there, you know, yeah, yeah. it would be nice to find some way to, like, fix it. I don't know if it's possible. I think it could be possible once those settlements are, you know, once there's a real freeze on those settlements and once Gaza is an actual place where people aren't, you know, millions of people aren't in prison there. That could be just a start, okay. you know. Yeah, um, I went to Israel um, a couple years ago for like novel research. Uh, I had this in my head that I was going to write a novel and the third act was going to be set there. And I had never been there. I'm, you know, I have no ties there. I just, I thought it seemed like an interesting place to do a third act of a novel, I guess. And so I thought if I was going to write it, I should go see it. And I, uh, I went over there, you know, for four days. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Which is like an absurdly short, it was like what? a lot. Yeah, it was like a long weekend. It was a really, you know, crazy, sleepless four, you know, four day weekend. But um, it's a fascinating place. You know, I feel like you should write a novel about that. Just yeah. like the absurdity of a of a novelist trying to kind of dial in Israel in four days. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I kind of am right now. I am. So I'm writing something where I am commenting on like that misguided or not misguided, but just sort of like failed attempt at like you know finding a story in that. Um, though there's a story in not finding a story in that. But, um, I think that's so rich, like satirically, you could yeah. have so much fun with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, one would hope, but anyway, it was, you know, it, it's, it's a hard place to wrap your head around, uh, in four days, um, or four. Days. Yeah. 
You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like the last place that you want to do that in, which is why it's so funny. Yeah, exactly. I'll just show up um, for a long weekend. I'll get a handle on this and then I'll come home. It's so easy. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you grew up in Kuwait. I did. Okay. Yes. And I, so, grew up, I grew up in Kuwait because Kuwait, like in the seventies and eighties was like uh, what I would say is like what Dubai is now, except we didn't have like cool things. <laughs> so it was like the, you know, it was like wealthy, but also some kind of intellectual sort of activity plus, um, you know, I don't know, middle-class families. And it was a huge place for Palestinians to go to in that time. So I grew up there and I grew up um, in a couple of different little neighborhoods there. And I went to British schools. So, okay. so yeah, when, when my teachers say, were British. When you say Dubai, because like I think of Dubai now and Dubai sort of got like a Las Vegas-y. Like, I feel like there's maybe some of that. I haven't been there, but I mean, just reading about it and like the, the grandeur of these hotels and like the amount, yeah. of, the amount of money swirling around. And it's obviously a little bit more socially liberal than a lot of places in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, though it's still, so Kuwait was kind of like that. It was. Okay. But, but it's still. But, but I would say it was like Atlantic City to, to devise <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> like Atlantic City after, after the storm, maybe, or something. Okay. I don't know. After the hurricane. Yeah. All right. And so what did your folks do? Were they like, you know, what's the industry there? Is it like the oil and energy or? My dad was a civil engineer and my mom was a stay at home mom who was also a musician. So she would sometimes, you know, play piano and do that. Um, so yeah, that's okay. what they, yeah. That, that's like your mom's like the, is that the artistic gene side of the family? Is that where you got it? Yeah, it is. And, and my dad used to say that it was him because he used to write poetry, but um, no, his poems were not very good. So I, I, I had to claim that it was my mom who did that. Do you have any musical? Did you get that? No, she made me take all these music classes and I was never into it. I wanted to dance, but I wasn't really, I just couldn't understand it. You know, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. So my son, my son plays guitar and sax and ukulele and bass. And he's like really into, you know, he, he understands it. How old is he? Um, 17. Oh, okay. I was going to say, is this kid like, he's not like four. Doing <laughs> I have a three-year-old who plays 19 instruments. <laughs> just he's, a humble brag. Yeah, it's just a total humble brag. He's a complete prodigy and he is the uh, fruit <laughs> uh, of my, yeah. He's a genius. Okay. Well, that's, see, that's enviable because I was listening to uh, My Morning Jacket uh, just this morning and I was listening to that. I don't even know the guy's name, the lead singer. He can sing in this falsetto and just like, you can just hear like the musicality, just the innate. You know, I'm sure he's had to work at it, but you can't teach that kind of thing, you know? No. It would be such a glorious talent to have. Like, I, I was sort of jokingly thinking to myself that if I could sing, like, the lead singer of My Morning Jacket, I would never talk. I would just sing everything that, <laughs> like, even in conversation, I would order at restaurants by, like, singing in a falsetto, you know? <laughs> Is it bad that, like, I kind of already do that, even though I can't sing? Um, the people in my house know this. Like, I... I will actually sing things that are completely mundane, you know, like I'll sing about how we're out of toilet paper or, <laughs> and my sister's like this too. And I found out from a couple of friends that they're, that they do this, that they're just like these domestic singers. Well, that's okay. I think that's kind of nice. You know, you got to bring a little music into your life somehow. That's what I'm telling you. I think you should order things in okay. a falsetto, even if you don't know how to, I mean, but just why the, not? Just, I, you know what I think I envy is like, and this is going to sound really naked, but like, I, I and like imagine the power like you can oh, just, yeah. to be able to sing like that and just to stand up in front of a microphone like you could just own a room like that would be um, 
you know, really fun to be a musician. Oh yeah. To, be able to have like kind of throw that kind of party and to change the temperature of the room like that. It's super powerful. And I think there's like an erotic element to it, but I think some, I, I lived in Austin for a long time and a lot of my friends would say they like would envy writers who did readings because it's rude to talk when a writer's reading, but they'd be up, you know, they'd be doing a show and they'd be singing and people are just like, having conversations about, you know, their bad dates or whatever. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, or, right? just like, or nowadays they're just like holding their cell phone up, which has got to be like, I was watching the uh, NBA all-star game and there was like some sort of musical performance and it was just like everyone in the crowd is mediating their experience by taking video or, or taking photos. Of, so fucked. I don't yeah. like that. I don't like it at all. I think it should be outlawed. Like you have to actually, I mean, not to be too touchy feely, but you should have to be there. Like enough with the mediating every single second of your life, you know. Like actually be present for this event. Well, yeah, I was going to use that word, but I don't want to, you know. That's yeah. You don't want to get all new agey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but know. it's happening right in front of your face. I think they should invent. Maybe okay, if they can't outlaw it, maybe invent something so that you can record, but not actually have to look through the thing while you're recording. I don't know. Yeah. Or something. I just, Google glass. I, 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 yeah, right. You all have to be wearing Google glass. That's, you have to. That's even worse. But uh, you know, I don't know. I just feel bad for the performers is what I'm saying, because I feel oh, like hell yeah. you just kind of have to block it out. And I, I think when you're up on stage and you're in those lights, you're mercifully can't see the faces of people, but I think you could probably see the shine of their phone maybe but yeah whatever so okay so childhood uh kuwait fond memories good times uh, it's a mix you know i think when you grow up in a dysfunctional household it's sort of like oh like that was i think that's you know most of my memories but we did i did grow up uh you know at a time when kids could just play outside with all their neighbors yeah so there was a lot of imaginative play you know we would have these like giant sand hills and we would like climb up them. And then like when we didn't have that, we had like a, we lived in an apartment building with really high walls around it. And we would climb up the walls and like run around. And, you know, we always lived close to some sort of construction site. So there was always like fun times of like going into construction sites and pretending that, you know, it's your whatever place or your land or whatever it was. So there's lots of imaginative play, and I like that. I, I had that too. And there's nothing more fun than like a very dangerous like shell of a house or building. That you're, <laughs> right. You're like running around on like beams when you're like 12 or whatever. <laughs> Exposed wires. Yeah. It's perfect. So uh, when you say uh, you, gr you grew up in a dysfunctional home, like did you – I mean what does that mean? It was just like, bad. Like the vibe in my household was always bad. Um, not Like not to get too into it, but – my dad was uh, abusive and just kind of narcissistic. And my mom was sort of, um, you know, just, I guess, accommodated that and um, had her own sorts of issues. And so it wasn't, it just didn't feel safe to be home, right. um, to be inside the home. So I always, I was always like ready to like, always like felt different, like felt other so it's not like I moved to the States and then felt other. Like, I think I felt that way from way before then, just feeling like, why, you know, why, why am I part of this family and feeling like I wasn't really. So I think that's, I think that's, I think good for a writer. Cause then you're sort of like always been in that observational on the margins kind of space. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find like when I talk to people, there's like something formative often that like has, um, 
you know, some event in childhood or some difficulty that kind of drove them inward or, you know, I don't know. It seems like that's like the, the creation moment somehow. Uh, and I think that being displaced, uh, whether it's like having a sense of emotional displacement or otherness or actually being physically displaced and moving into a brand new environment where you're sort of the stranger in a strange land. Um, that's perfect. That that's totally perfect for making a writer. You know, that's, that's what happened to me. I mean, it was maybe not quite as dramatic, but I think when my family moved, um, when I was 11, that was probably, you know, where did they move? Where did they move to? Not far, but it was like six hours. So, you know, it's one city to the next from Milwaukee. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, to me, it might as well have been to Mars. You know what I mean? Exactly. Saying? Yeah. So you're 11. You're 11. Yeah. And so everything, everything that I ever knew Shifts. was gone and all my friends were gone. And suddenly I was in this place where nobody knew me. And, um, had that not happened, who knows? I, you know, did you, did you reinvent yourself when that happened? I guess, yeah. I mean, I think my, I remember my, my sixth grade year, um, that was my first year there. I started to get interested in school. Like I, I wasn't like an awesome athlete. I was pretty good, but like not good enough to distinguish myself. Um, and it was like a, a relatively big school. And, uh, so I think like I got really into being smart. Uh, and I remember I wrote like a letter to my guidance counselor, uh, requesting that I be moved up into an accelerated class. Because, That's awesome. Yeah. But I mean, like, I think like, I mean, I don't want to make it sound too cool, but I think I was really like just trying to find some way to identify. And like, you know, I had a little bit of chutzpah and they, they were like, okay, well, if you want to move up, we'll move you up. And then I started to kind of like carve out an identity in that for a while, you know, that I could like do some book learning or something. I think that's so cool because it's rare, you know, it's not like that's sexy or sort of seen as, you know, oh, that's what you do. You know, you can, you can be smart, right? <laughs> I was grasping at straws <laughs> <laughs> or that might be, maybe that was like my peak. That was like the coolest thing I ever did. But it maybe worked. you were, maybe you were trying to get out of, of, you know, you just wanted to accelerate so you could leave high, leave school faster and sort of leave that place. You something, know? something, you know, I just think like when you're a kid at that age, you want to be, you want to feel like you're good at something. And I was like, what can I do? You know? Oh yeah. So anyhow, uh, you want to be set apart. Yeah. Something, you know, yeah. like I, I was, I was grasping and that's what I caught hold of, but it was great. Cause I had a really good teacher in sixth grade who was probably the best teacher I ever had. And so that, you know, that set me on my course too, because he made us read a lot of good books. Uh, I feel like they all have that. All writers have that, like one or two teacher English teachers or just good teachers that made us that's right. read. Or, yeah, or it's not only that. It's not only like they handed you the right books and kind of you know uh, set you on your way in that manner, but they also you know there's always um, or there is often I find when I'm talking to writers a teacher or teachers who said uh, you should be a writer. You're good at this. And yeah, that's sort of like compliment like really sticks, you know, it does. It really does. Yeah. So, uh, I want to hear about the first, Ara the first Gulf war, because that kind of precipitated your family's move to the United States. And, uh, can you talk about that experience? Like how intense was it? How close to violence were you? Like what, what really set the gears in motion to where you were, uh, suddenly immigrating? I think I, I always think of this as in terms like I always compare it to other people's sorts of experiences in the Middle East. And to me, I just think it was like, I don't know, like almost like a like a, a war light, you know, like it's not quite 
Because, <laughs> you know, you, you, my friends who grew up in Beirut and Lebanon during the, the Civil War and then, like, people now who are in, you know, in Egypt and in Syria and, like, what they're experiencing, I mean, that, that feels like it's the real deal. But um, it, it wasn't – it was just sort of, you know, if you imagine living in a place that's kind of not quite urban and then you're seeing, like, tanks kind of rolling by and – um you're hearing things get bombed, you know, it's just, it's just sort of, um, it just, it, it does affect you because you're not expecting it and you, you don't, you know, you, you don't know how to deal with it. If I saw tanks rolling through my neighborhood, <laughs> I'd be out of there. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't be sticking around. <laughs> exactly. That's all I need to see. I don't need to, yeah. you know, if, if I hear bombing in the distance, I'm gone. Yeah. But like, you know, I grew up, I grew up during the Iraq-Iran war. And so these wars were happening really close to Kuwait. So I grew up kind of knowing that this stuff was happening. But once it, once it was happening in my vicinity, it was, it was jarring, you know, um, and adults were acting cause they'd been through all these serious wars. So they were acting like it wasn't a big deal. You know, they were just like having like people over and, you know, just hanging out. And so that, that was always, that was confusing to the kids who'd grown up kind of sheltered. Right. Um, you're like, so hey, yeah, you're like, Hey guys, shouldn't we be moving? <laughs> like, yeah. Can we leave? Can we please evacuate. <laughs> can we get the fuck out of here? <laughs> Which was always complicated, right? Because you can't, you can, you know, you can leave to Saudi Arabia if you're a certain nationality or you can try to leave through Iraq, but then it's kind of scary. So we left through Iraq. And I remember um, we'd never like gone on a real road trip. Like my family had never done that. So this was like a road trip from Kuwait to Jordan through Iraq. And it took a couple days and I'd never been to Iraq. And here was this amazing country that had this rich, rich, rich history, you know, all this is just beautiful. And we're going through it and it's under these really weird circumstances. But I remember really being affected by those. I still remember those couple of days. I still remember what I was wearing. I was wearing these really cheesy, like, fuchsia leggings and, like, this really cool black, tight black T-shirt. And, like, I just remember, like, going through there and just thinking this has been, you know, 20 miles away from me for all these years. And I've never, you know, I've been, you know, because Kuwait is, like, a fake country. You know, it was, like, it was originally like a, a country where like it was mostly like fishermen were living there and stuff. But here's Iraq with this centuries old history. Right. Right. So that was really, um, I still think of that. Well, I, that think, time. I think road trips for a kid. I mean, I've, I remember those experiences as well. You put a kid in a car. It's a good thing to do. I hope to, I hope to do it with my daughter. Like when she gets a little older, you know, Oh, you should totally do it. Even yeah. Though, even though I'm going to suffer terribly, <laughs> Because, you know, road trips, some of the shine comes off as you get older and you're in a car for like 48 hours. But, um, you know, you got to do it. I think you got to put your kid in the car and you got to drive like hundreds of miles and you've got to let the, the, <laughs> the topography change and it's got to get annoying. Exactly. They've got to start whining. They've got, you know, everyone's got to suffer a little bit in that car. Yeah. And like start. Yeah, and like start smelling weird. And, yeah, 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 yeah. And you go into, a, go into a fugue state. You need those experiences. So I think so too. Um, so you get to Egypt, you live in this beach town, uh, for like a year. It was really kind of just like a way station. Like, were you always planning, were you always planning, uh, was your family always planning to get to the States or were they just like, let's go to Egypt, let's relax until, you know, things cool off and then we'll figure out our next move or was it? Yeah, it was, it was, let's go to Egypt until like we can go back to Kuwait. I mean, that was the plan. 
Uh-huh. But then um, Palestinians were not allowed to go back to Kuwait because they uh, because Arafat, being this doofus that he always was, like sided with Saddam during the Gulf War. So Palestinians were not allowed entry, and I, there were hundreds of thousands of them who were not allowed to go back. Oh uh, and then at that point, my dad, you know, we, we were thinking, oh, okay, well, let's try to stay in Egypt. But then. Um, my dad got this kind of hookup with a job that he'd or with a company that he'd been working with in Kuwait in New York. So he went to New York and he actually took me with him, um, for a week. We went to New York and he like worked with this company and I just wandered, he would give me 10 bucks in the morning and I would just wander in New York. This is like 1991. And I'm just (laughs) like white plains or or New York. No, New York city. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. So I'm like 13 and a half. (laughs) Right. And I'm just like wandering around New York with $10 in my pocket. And I remember at some point, um, this guy came up to me and he said, there's money like come falling out of your pocket. And there was like this $10 bill was like peeking out. And he, he actually like helped me. And I thought that New York was supposed to be this like dangerous, terrible place. But here was a friendly American telling me like, put your money back in your pocket, kid, <laughs> yeah. you know, which was amazing. Hey, moron, yeah. T- put your, tuck your money into your pocket. <laughs> Yeah. I still remember I, I walked, I was trying to find the Empire State Building and I, and I, I like went up to this, to someone and was like, where's the Empire State Building? And they just pointed up and I was literally at the base of it, but I hadn't thought to like look all the way up, you know? Hey, you're 13 and a half. Catch you some I'm, slack. I am. And I've never seen buildings that tall. So, right. yeah. Well, you know, it's funny that you talk about New York and, and its reputation for people being unfriendly because the same thing is true of Paris. Like it's got this reputation of people being shitty and um, I've, I've been to both places. They're two of my favorite cities. I don't think people are in the least bit rude. Uh, oh no. I've never had that experience. I don't think it's a, I think it's a total myth. I mean, there, there are assholes everywhere and there are nice people everywhere, but like this idea that like you go to New York and suddenly people are just like, you know, shrieking at you and telling you to go F yourself is complete uh, hogwash. It is. And actually, like, even if they did do that, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I mean, that's how I grew up with like people yelling. It's fine. Like it's family, you know, it's just the way it is. Well, and I don't mind like people being a little bit blunt. I mean, I prefer it that way. Like, let me know where I stand, you know, I don't exactly because otherwise you're in these, you know, these, uh, cause you know, my folks are from the South and I, I have kind of a good polar, um, opposite experience where you're in the South and there are all these social graces, which can be really nice. And people have sort of a, um, an elegance to how they oh, interact yeah. with one another. Socializing is easier, but you also sometimes, um, you know, people can be smiling at you and, uh, you know, thinking really nasty. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, yeah, or then you leave the room and it's like, you know, all of a sudden the knives come out. So I almost like it better when people just take the knives out in front of you. Yeah, yeah. So I think it, I, I feel that way too. Yeah, I'm like, sure. that's. I mean, I don't know. I'm. A, I like New York. I like Paris. I don't care what anyone says. I have to say, I feel that way about everything except race. I feel like if you're if you're gonna be if you're gonna be racist, like I almost would rather you just be a covert racist because I don't. There's something about that. Like I remember being in Texas and people, you know, people were obviously racist, but it wasn't really to my face. Right. And then and then and then when I go to other places, people are just saying, like when I lived in the Midwest, people were saying these really fucked up things about Muslims and Arabs. Um, in, in Dearborn and I was like, um, excuse me, right, you know? right, right. Well, yeah. that's the new, ra- can you just pretend, can you just be nice? Well, but this is the thing. This is the new racism. Uh, I don't know if you, do you ever watch real time, uh, the Bill Maher show? Like he's been saying this the last it's few not- years and I, uh, I think I totally agree is that racism has sort of gone 
um, subterranean in America where people who are racist just pretend that it doesn't exist. Or that's like kind of the, the, the line, you know, like there's no racism, you know, and you can't be overt with it anymore and, and have it be socially acceptable unless like you're at the Klan meeting or you're in the company of other racists. Right. But, uh, you know. Sorry. My what phone is... just went off. Oh, it did. Okay. Um, but I feel like, you know, I feel like that's sort of the case. I mean, you can, you know, it's there, but it's just not there in kind of like a really naked way. And maybe... It's always like, oh, poor thing. Like you can't be racist at your, openly at your clan meeting anymore. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Well, that but... must be so hard. <laughs> well, but it's also like, I don't, I, I don't like the idea that people are like, you know, saying, well, it's over, you know, that's the past. There's no more racism because. Oh, there's... of course. I mean, of course you have to have some sort of privilege to feel that way, you know. To feel what way? To, to feel that there's no racism. Yeah. I mean, either, either that, like you're in denial and you just live a life of privilege where it doesn't touch you or, you know, you secretly harbor those feelings and like, you're just like smiling and saying it doesn't exist. And oh, yeah. you know damn well that it does, you know? And so yeah. that just feels like that feels accurate to me. You know, it's like, we can't, it's no longer fashionable in any public quarters to, you know, do these things, but we can all just kind of like say what needs to be said and then carry on in some sort of uh, nasty way. Oh yeah. I don't know if I'm characterizing yeah. that as articulately as I could, but I think hopefully my point makes some sense. No, I think it does. And you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's incredibly unpleasant, you know, Did to, you, to, to you, deal with. Okay. So when you moved over here um, and you're trying to integrate uh, into white plains and your school there, um, you know, this is pre nine 11 and um, you know, I guess like the first Gulf war was a, it's kind of, I mean, it was an event, but it wasn't nearly as big of an event. You know, the war was like a, a very brief thing for the Americans and there wasn't a lot of loss of life on our side. So like, I don't feel like it had this deep of a national impact in the American psyche as like 9-11 and everything that's gone on. And like the Iraq war. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, I, I, you know, I just don't feel like people were maybe as hyped up in the way that they were post 9-11 with regard to, um, you know, Arab uh, American relations and all that kind of stuff. Like, did you, when you moved here, feel, um, a sense of hostility where people, uh, like openly racist to you when you were a child? I think, I mean, people were just, uh, ignorant. So they would just be like, you know, well, you know, did you live in a tent? You know, like, did you, they were just dumb, you know? So, and, and I, I, I hate being like an educator about stuff like that. I'm just like, read a book, you know? Right. So I think I was just like, eh. and then, um, and then after that first year, I just never told anyone I was Arab until I was done with high school. Cause I just didn't want to deal, you know, I just didn't want to deal with their, their questions and their, their racism. And, and then of course that would be sad sometimes. Cause I'd be hanging out with someone who I thought was a friend and then they'd say something totally racist about Arabs, you know, and I would just be like, oh, shit, you know, I can't really be this person's friend anymore. They don't know I'm Arab, so they're just being themselves openly. Um, so, yeah, I think the first because I, I did 10th, 11th and 12th grade and those three years, I just was like sort of like the the under the radar Arab um, <laughs> Until I went to, until I went to college. And then, so, yeah. And no, I mean, it's like, it's interesting that you say that, like you have these friends and you get along great and you like them and they like you and your buddies, but they don't know you're Arab. And then they say something stupid. And would you, would you just pull the plug on the friendship? Yeah. With this, this one girl we were talking about, 
you know, she was talking about how she, she, she was going to, or she went to London with her family, you know, like, like over the holidays or something. And I was like, did you like it? And she said, yeah, but there were too many Arabs. Oh man. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you. First of all, you know, the class situation where you can just like hop off to London, you know, for the holidays. So I hate, I hate you already. (laughs) And then now you're being racist. So yeah, I just stopped hanging out with her and I don't, you know, I think high school is so weird that she probably just assumed whatever she assumed, you know. Yeah, people just don't think, you know, they just don't think. It's it's so yeah. strange because, like, um, I, you know, I have family members. My family's from the South. So, of course, like, I have, like, uh, grandparents and relatives and stuff like that whose attitudes on race, um, you know, can leave me wanting at times. Oh, totally. And yet they're family I bet. members. Yeah, and yet they're family members. So it's like you try to navigate. Oh, them. yeah. That, it's it's yeah. like you love them, but you're like, I don't. And you can't say anything because you're not going to, like, lecture your grandparents. Like, it's very tough. Why not? I mean, I, I don't know if you ever go, go on this this Tumblr. I don't know if it's popular anymore, but it's, um, is this racist? I think it's yo, is this racist.tumblr.com. <laughs> right. And, one of the, and, like, one of the things he says is, like, you know what? Like there were white people, you know, in, in the fifties that were standing up for people of color that were fighting for justice. Like why not step up to your, to your white, you know, grandparents and be like, you know what, grandma, we don't, we don't say that word. And also this is why, and also like, come on, like why, you know, well, she's, I mean, one reason I can't do it is because they're dead. (laughs) Oh, well, shit. (laughs) But, you know, I was a young child. I was like, you know, I was 10, 12. And, you know, you know, the difference. Already, yeah, my yeah. sisters, my sisters and I would be like, well, what do we say? And it, it wasn't like they were like super violently nasty, but it was just like these lingering. Like fe- insinuations. Just these- insinuations and fears, you know, it's just fear and yeah, yeah. fear and ignorance. And so, you know, I see it that way. And it's like, um, you, you know, it's obviously not pleasant and it's not something that you, you're, you feel real proud of, but you also, it, it sort of feels human to me because they're my grandparents and you're like, oh, they're good people. They're just confused and afraid about this thing. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think, I mean, I think so about the high school thing, I think, um, like dealing with, dealing with the racism was actually so not as a, a big a deal as dealing with the kind of sexism that I dealt with and the slut shaming. I feel like, I feel like I, I mean, I talk to a lot of my friends now and I think there was just so much slut shaming going on in high school. Um, what is that? Think- okay. T- talk, walk me through <laughs> slut shaming. Basically, if you're like a sexually active, uh, young woman and you, um, that's it. That's it. Then <laughs> that's really it. And you're, you're not, slut. and you're not interested in having a boyfriend. So you're having sex with several people. Right. Right. That's just not, you know, that's, I think people just don't, people in certain circles or at that age just don't know, or they're just sexist or misogynist or sex negative. Uh-huh. Um, so it's not like, oh, I pretended not to be Arab and then all my problems went away. You know, I pretended not to be Arab, but I was still a woman in a, like a young woman in a young woman's body who wanted to be sex positive. And so I had to deal with like all this other shit. So I think that's, that's just as formative as the racism that I dealt with. Yeah. So you were, but you were out there and you were like, I'm going to have some sex and I don't care what anyone says, but yeah. I mean, I grew up in a household that was incredibly sex negative. Okay. So for me, I was just like, uh, no, like I'm not, you know, I'm not just going to like marry some dude and have sex with him for the rest of my life. That's not, you know, that's not like, like, yeah. So 
Um, yeah. And I just remember, let me, let me actually ask you about this because I have a daughter, like I want to be, um, wise about this, you know, like I, cause I, I don't want to be like sex negative. I've never used that term, but I like that. I don't want to have like some sort of, uh, relationship with, uh, my child where I'm like, you know, you can't do this because that's absurd. You know, you get to, you get to a certain age and you're a human being and this is what human beings want to do. Oh yeah. But like, uh, I think that it's best if the sex happens within the context of like some sort of, um, caring relationship as opposed to just like random, like random sex. <laughs> but why it's all part of, I mean, it's, it'll be all part of her knowledge and, and her growth as a person. And, you know, I mean, I mean, that should be her sort of choice. So I think part of being a sex positive dad would be to kind of, never sort of shut down the conversation about sex with her. Okay. Um, see her as her own person. All right. Um, and maybe also Google sex positive dad. I think there, <laughs> I think there was, I think there was a really good Buzzfeed essay on it at some point, but it was, I mean, it's great. I mean, it's, you know, just, just sort of not being weird, you know, about bodies and, and obviously respecting hers and, and, you know, yeah, the whole idea of like women, don't have to look the way that you think they should look and they don't have to act the way that you think. I was talking to this writer a few weeks ago and I, he was, he was being very protective about his teenage daughter. And I said, aren't you a sex positive dad? And he said, I'm sex positive about everyone else, but not my daughter. And I was like, what? You might as well be like my mustachioed Palestinian father, you know, like what is going on here? Well, it's hard. I think, well, you just want to be protective. I think it's a natural instinct, but um, I think part of being protective, though, I think the shift should be part of being protective is making sure she knows about, you know, consent and making sure she knows about, um, like, protection and condoms and going to the doctor for your regular checkups and, like, protecting her health, not protecting her sort of physical boundaries. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that she can make good decisions and then you can be, you know you can know that she's experiencing, you know, positive and pleasurable relations. Sex. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, okay. So was I was reading, I was reading something in the paper not too long ago about like Denmark and how, you know, parents there are like, let their teenage kids have, have sleepovers. Yeah. They have sleepovers. And like, I think I'm down with that. Like, I'd rather know where they are. I mean, you know, what's going to happen. And I think there's something to the idea that you should have respect for your child's uh relationships when they're teenagers like it's so disrespectful to like treat them as like these little like you know idiots who don't know what they're doing and do you know what i'm saying like because it's I, totally disrespectful i remember i remember resenting that so i mean obviously it would be nice if my daughter when she's a teenager is like dating some uh kid that i think is a good kid as opposed to like some crazy you know um idiot but i guess you can't <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but that's all that'll be all part of her growth you know like no, don't you no. want her don't you want her dating a crazy idiot when she's a teenager and not a, dating a crazy idiot when she's in her 30s no but it's hard to watch you know at some point she has to date a crazy idiot so you have to think okay earlier the better and hopefully she won't breed with him you know what i mean like oh, that's exactly oh my god let's you know it's 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 acceptable for me to be like a little bit uh, anxious about this, right? I'm not being yes. Okay. No, no, no. I think it's normal to be anxious, and I think the anxiety a lot of it has to do with like, oh, like my, you know, my child is a separate person from me. 
you know, there's this um, really great line and um, this woman, Deborah Monroe, wrote this memoir about her adopted daughter. And she said that um, her daughter having a child was basically like having your heart just be walking around in the world. Well, sure. Like, yeah. I, I've used, out of your body. Yeah. I've used that same line. Maybe I stole it from Deborah. I think we featured her on the nervous breakdown. So, Oh, cool. Um, but yeah, that's definitely how it feels. And I, and I also, I also happen to believe that that's actually true. I mean, if you think about like the actual biology of it, she is your physical externalization or he, if it's your son, you know, like that's not, that's not even like a stretch. That's actually it. You know? <laughs> like, kind of. But then I look at my son and I'm like, you're really nothing like me. I mean, <laughs> we're similar in some ways, but I mean, yeah. so, so that's, I had my son when I was 18. Okay. And my parents probably thought of themselves as very protective. So that's that's my warning story for other parents. I'm just like, you know. Yeah. Did you breed with a, a good guy? <laughs> I bred with a crazy idiot, Brad. I bred with a crazy idiot. Uh, I'm starting to perspire. Okay. <laughs> so let's get to that. You graduate high school in White Plains, New York. Were Actually, you... I, I, we moved to Connecticut a year later. So I graduated in uh, high school in Connecticut. Okay. Where in Connecticut? You don't want to know. I'm so ashamed. Why? <laughs> because I, because people always think when I tell them that um, I went to Greenwich High School uh-huh. um, that you know they just it just attaches these sorts of things to um, to I don't know I just don't want people to think that you know um, I, it's hard to explain but yeah it was in it was in old Greenwich in Connecticut okay. which so- was which was the grossest place to be if you're you know, Arab or human actually. Right. <laughs> right. But it's like old, it's like old white money, basically. Old white money. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you're there. How did you, why did you go there? Just dad's job? And No, he just, they just didn't think white planes was white enough. Okay. So they wanted, so they, they wanted you to be in a white town. Is that what they want? I think they just wanted like good property and they wanted to like, feel like they'd made it in America. You know, it's like this old immigrant story where they're just like we want to feel like we make it we made it so like they bought like the cheapest mercedes you know the the least expensive mercedes model and then they bought this house in old greenwich and you know all five of us shared this car and and this this house and i think that they just wanted to feel like they'd arrived yeah you know yeah 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 i I get it okay so um you get out of there and then where where do you go after that if you mean you you had a baby at 18 uh, I went to college. Um, I went to Sarah Lawrence and I was actually 16 when I graduated from high school. Oh. So I, my parents didn't want me to move away from home because they were so protective. Yeah. So I went to, um, Sarah Lawrence because they have, they had really good writing teachers and, you know, you could take writing workshop every single semester there as an undergrad. You're allowed to do that. So wait, you, so, you knew you wanted to be a writer at that age? Yes, definitely. Yes. Okay. So, and, and where did that, like, where did it generate? I mean, it, was it something that you were doing before you moved overseas or was it something that, um, you know, once, yeah. you made the move, once you made the move, you were like starting to pick up the pen? I think like, you know how I think artists say this, that everybody's an, everybody's an artist, everybody is a visual artist. And then the people who continue to be artists are the people who keep doing it. Right. You know, so I think everybody has these old notebooks of, stories that they wrote and like little comics that they made. And like, I think everybody has that. It's just that I think writers just kept doing that. Yeah. It's like Um, arrested development or we just kind of stayed in that state. Yeah. (laughs) Peter Pan's 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, so I think I just was really into it and I liked writing and I liked reading. I definitely, it was, it was mostly because of reading, you know, when you're, when you're a loner kid or you're weird or you're being slut shamed or whatever, like you tend to escape into books, I think. So what books were you escaping into? I was actually really into classics. Like I was really into like the red badge of courage and like the scarlet letter. And then at some point I took a, yeah, the, the girl who's being slut shamed loves the scarlet letter. Yes, I did. <laughs> and like, we read parts of Dante's Inferno and you know, like these books that were, that are total classics. I never, ever, I mean, I'm, I've never read a YA novel. Like I don't, I'm sure they're awesome, but um, I want to I write did. one. I want to, that's where the money is. I keep going, God, why can't I, why can't I be into YA? Right. You know? Yeah. Why can't, yeah. I need to do that too, but I, I just, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I know. It's just, you know, it's gotta, you can't force it. I think that's a recipe for disaster, but yeah, then you won't make any money. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah. But I mean, then if you stick with like literary, like adult literary fiction, you're probably not going to make any money, you know, either. So yeah, we're not, we're totally not in the business of making money. <laughs> You know, that's why I teach. Like we, we all need day jobs, right? Like yeah. there's no, yeah. Um, okay. So you get out, so, you, you were a, a precocious kid though. If you're graduating high school at 16. Well, I did exactly what you did. You know, like when we moved here, I was 13 and a half and um, I was convinced that I needed to be in 10th grade because I was doing the math in terms of my British schooling. And it sounded like I was in ninth grade in British school. So <clears throat> we met with the superintendent and you know, she said, well, let's try you for a semester. And I was like, so nerdy that I got the honor roll. Right. Like, so they were like, okay, yeah, you can stay on that tract. So I just started 10th grade when I was 13. So, so, and I, I did it because I really wanted to leave my parents' house. You're just (laughs) like, get me to Sarah Lawrence. Or no, I didn't want to go there at all. I wanted to go anywhere, anywhere that was not near my parents. Yeah. Get me away from these people. But But I had to go to this place that was only 30 minutes away because they wouldn't let me move out. And I was under 18. And so it was tough. Okay. And then, um, then you got pregnant and had a baby at 18. Yeah. I found an alternative way to leave. (laughs) (laughs) Your parents must've been thrilled. They must've been. Oh yeah. They're so stoked. (laughs) They were just like, we're going to be grandparents. We're in the forties. This is awesome. You get my uh, world's greatest grandma sweatshirt. Um, Get it out. Okay. So, but that's a big experience for a teenager. I mean, that must've completely, I mean, that obviously alters the course of a life. Oh yeah. It totally, it's totally altered my life. And um, I love my kid and I feel like it was actually probably the best decision I, I've made. Um, but I never want to have kids again, so it's perfect. It's just like, this is, I feel like if I hadn't had him, I probably wouldn't have kids. And I feel like having him helped me kind of focus in a way and help me revisit my childhood and help me, you know, write about childhood in a way that I probably wouldn't have. So... Well, and yeah, I mean, like, what about like, uh, your schooling and like just getting through like these other kind of, you know, I don't want to, I guess, normal steps of life, you know, everyone's going through college and graduating. Like, did you finish or did you, Oh yeah, you did. I went, yeah. I, I didn't even take any time off. I just, I had him and then I went back to school. Where were, and you, li- where were you living? I was living with the crazy idiot at the time. Okay. Um, did and his get, parents, did you get married? I did very briefly. Okay. Yes. Okay. 
and his parents lived across the way. And Sarah Lawrence has a really great schedule. Like, you know, you can, you can basically take class like a grad student. So like once a week you take a three hour class. So, you know, a couple of days a week, my mother-in-law or my, the crazy idiot would hang out with my kid <laughs> for a few hours while I went to class. And then when, when I broke up with him very shortly after I moved back in with my parents, which was awful, Oh God! but yeah. it was only for a year and a half. And then I moved to Austin, Texas, and I went to um, UT Austin for an, a master's degree in Middle East studies. Okay. Yeah. Was that good? So, it was great. It was super fun. So you have a yeah. young child. You're doing that. Did you get like a scholarship to do the MFA? It was like I mean, kind of like the MFA where you get some some dough to go study. I got a little bit of dough. Yeah, not a lot. I think we were living on something like seven hundred dollars a month, but it was totally like it was doable, you know, in the nineties, I guess, in Austin. Okay. It was, was able to do that. And Austin, Austin, good. People like Austin. Austin's great. Yeah. Yeah. Texas. It's kind of like, but I mean, it's like an oasis in Texas. It's different than the rest of Texas. It's a blue dot and a red sea is what they say. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. That's a nice way of putting yeah. it. So, uh, Middle Eastern studies, like, was this an attempt to kind of get a grip on, um, your roots and like to, to understand the context of your upbringing or yeah. And I was also really into like Arabic novels and Arabic literature. So I figured if I like reading this stuff, why not, you know, try to get paid to do it and not have to get a real job for a couple of years. Yeah. Well, and I feel like too, like, I feel like being an, you know, a quote unquote expert or having like a really deep understanding of that sort of stuff would make you uh, employable in a lot of different ways. Like, isn't that valuable knowledge or am I over? It, it was, I think it is now it wasn't at the, I graduated in 2000. Um, I think if I graduated maybe two or three years later and wanted to work at the state department, there would have been a really good job waiting for me. Right. That's what I was um, thinking. Something like that, where you could go in there and be like some sort of like cultural envoy or translator. Totally. Yeah. Right. But since I hate doing that stuff, I think I just was like two years to read and hang out and like hang out in Austin, you know, and, and then you, I just stayed. Why do you hate doing that stuff? Like you don't like to, you don't like to teach people or like help people stop being idiots. <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately if you're working for the state department, it's not to help them stop being idiots. It's like to help them continue to colonize my ancestral lands, you know, to put it bluntly. So I was just like, why, why would I help them do that? Yeah. Does that make sense? I guess so. Yeah. And then yeah. what about, what about, uh, like, what about like just like casual idiots in your life who like are well-meaning, but just don't understand. Like you just like, you're just like, here's a book. Just, I don't even have time. Yeah. Here's a book. <laughs> exactly. Just like read a few of these things. <laughs> then get back you know, to me. Then get a get... subscription to like, I don't know, Harper's and a couple of other things. <laughs> like yeah. get some reading done. Yeah. I mean, you know what? That's a good point. Like it's, it, sh it shouldn't be your job to have to like coach people up on all this stuff, even though. I don't know. I guess people, do people ask you to do that a lot? Not a lot. Um, I think I've, or maybe they do and I blocked it out. <laughs> I've completely blocked out the experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tend, obviously tend to hang out with people who like, you know, know about that stuff. And, um, so it doesn't come up in conversation really with my friends and stuff at, at the bar. It doesn't. Okay. So, well, so yeah, I mean, I, am I asking too many questions? Now I'm getting self-conscious, like because I feel like I I know I know probably more than the average person, but that's not saying much in America. Um, and like, there's a want to be educated and to be, but it's just so hard to keep up with everything, you know. Like, 
there's so much I don't know. There's so much you don't know. There's so much everybody doesn't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's, but thankfully that's sort of part of being intelligent is realizing that we don't know that much. Right. You know, it's the assholes that are like, I got this, yeah. you know, <laughs> like they're on fucking Fox news being like, I got this. I yeah. know exactly what it's like there. Yeah. I went, I went to Israel for four days. Yeah. I had, I had a, I had <laughs> and a four- actually, I know exactly what happens there. <laughs> I'm like, I ate some hummus and rode a bike. Like I have no idea. It was what perfect. It was awesome. Yeah. Had some really good falafel. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So all along you have this baby. I'm, and like, this is another thing about having a child young. Um, that interests me or it seems like this is the this was the case for you is that like you just sort of rolled with it oh yeah i feel like maybe having a child later in your life throws you more like but when you're 18 you're like okay let's do this like i can do it like yeah because when you're older you already have a life and so you're trying to integrate being your child right and like you're changing your life because you're trying to figure out how to be a parent and it affects you but when you're 18 you don't have your own life right yeah yeah. So, so they just have to, they're just part of it then. And well, then you kind of grow up together. I was going to yeah. say, and you just don't know what you don't know. You're just like, okay. Cause I remember when, I mean, when I was 18, I was like, yeah, I can be a dad. You know? <laughs> yeah. You, you, the hubris, the hubris of youth is right. so fun to watch. Yeah. Seriously. Like I'm going to go get my master's and then, you know, but you did it. And then uh, you're in Austin, you're reading a lot, you're studying, you're doing your middle Eastern studies masters. And then um, when did you transition and start to like write fiction and think I'm going to, I'm going to publish. I was always writing fiction, but then I took these two years off, right. To read these books. And I like, I don't want to sound cocky, but I am like, I was like, you know what? I can actually write a book. That's a little better than this. Really? I know that sounds fun. You know, when you're like 22 and you're just like, I can do this, you know, yeah, like you're yeah. just like, you just don't know. So it's like the same thing with the kid. The same thing that happened with having a kid happened with like writing a novel. I was just like, I can do this, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I started to get serious about writing, wrote a bunch of short stories and then started my novel. And that, that was like really, really long. How did, Journey, you, how did but, you find the time? Like, you know, cause if you're balancing like parenthood with, you know, the time that it takes to write uh, a novel, like, how did you do that? I think some people ask me this. I, I, I think I just wasn't, I think I was okay with being an okay parent. Does that make sense? Like I was like, you you're know not, what? You're not a tiger mom. <laughs> I was like, you know what? My kid's going to play with his game boy for an hour and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Like my kid's gonna watch Cartoon Network for an hour and a half while I'm writing, and that's fine. Oh well, yeah, you know, you know what? Because I'm a, I have a young child. I think p- people are ridiculous about parenthood, like overthinking yeah. it and over intellectualizing it. And super like, competitive. Super competitive and reading all these books, and it's just like, come on. Oh people. God, I didn't read a single book. Me about neither. Parenthood. Me neither. And I'm a reader. I'm a reader, and like I exactly. I, like I, you know, about anything I would want to learn. But there's a part of me that's like, okay, this is going to just drive me crazy. And I think it's it's an industry, and there are there are many of them. It's strangely like there's a lot of them that seem to spring out of domestic, you know, domesticity. But like yes. the wedding industry plays on similar fears and comp- you know competitive instincts and whatnot. Oh yeah, it's and so crazy. they make all this money off of that schooling. You know, like these private schools are a, a fucking racket. And, yeah, uh, fuck all that. They totally play on that. And then no uh, parenthood books. You know, like are you doing it right? Did you do it right? Did you do this? Did you forget to do this? What are you feeding them? And it's like. You know, I resent that. It's like, you know, I'm, I, it's hard enough. You know, like I don't need It to- is. And honestly, intuitive parenting works. Like whatever it is. 
as long as your intuition isn't to like beat your kid up or whatever, right? Like right. your intuition is usually, oh, I need to feed my kid. I need to clothe my kid. I need to bathe my kid. I need to, like, you actually know what you're doing, you know? I mean, I so, so why not just trust what you're doing and trust that like you want the best for your kid and you're doing it right. And whatever you, you probably have a community of parents around you and you guys can just chat and be like, Hey, you know, so-and-so is, only sleeping three hours at a time. What do I do about that? You know? Right. Right. I mean, I don't know. You can figure it out. And, and I don't mean to, I mean, maybe there's a book out there that somebody reads and it really helps them, but I just get exhausted by that. And I feel like my intuition is pretty good. And I think like really just, just love your child, pay attention to your child, spend time with them, spend time with them, read books to them, be a good example. Don't just, you know, don't display anger and like act out anger and, um, yeah, basics. Basics. Yeah, exactly. And the basics are actually, that's pretty much it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then the rest is up to them and they can just go start having sex when they're 15 and exactly. And you can just be like, <laughs> that's great. I want you to experience pleasure. Here are several condoms and also uh, some. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to call you in about, I'm going to call you back in about 12 years. Just do it. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So the publication of your novel, like uh, what was that whole story? How did it go down? It was, it was a long road. I mean, I think, uh, my agent started submitting it in 2000 and I want to say 2003 or four and, um, nobody would pick it up. And so in 2006, it got picked up by other press, which is this really cool independent press in New York. Um, and then they wouldn't bring it out for another two years. So it came out in 2008 and, um, Luckily people, you know, it got some good reviews and then, uh, Penguin bought the rights to it, but it was a long road getting that book published and mm -hmm. I've never understood, you know, well, I mean, it, the... it seems like a familiar story, frankly, yeah. especially for, yeah. I mean, there, I, I, you know, I should say that there are instances where you hear, you know, I'll talk to these debut authors who are like, and you know, my agent called me five days later and <laughs> I'm just like, I hate you. Yeah, right. I don't give a fuck. Like, I will admit that. Like, I am envious. <laughs> it's, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's maddening. And, and it's just, I, I think there's luck involved. I think oh, there's, yeah. there's a lot of luck involved, not only in publishing, but in life. And uh, I was, well, what I was going to say was I've never understood, like, how it even got picked up. So I'm just like, awesome. It got picked up. Yeah. And then it's out there. people responded, you know, to it well. And, like, did you ever. Um, did you ever lose confidence? Like, did you ever have have a moment where it was out there on the market and nobody was, was touching it where you were thinking like, maybe I'm not as good at this as I thought I was? Of course. Yeah. yeah. And also like worried because I'd taken a lot of risk, you know, like during those years, I wasn't really working that much. And so I, you know, my son and I were on food stamps and I was just like, really? Like, did I do all this? Was it stupid to sort of not work and provide better for my kid and have a better life. And right. so all these, all these existential weird sorts, sorts of things were happening. And but when did you start to teach? Uh, I moved here four years ago and started teaching full time. Okay. And you're so, there. Is that, are you, are you planting there like roots? Like this is where you want to be? I don't feel like I'm ever going to plant roots anywhere, okay. but I mean, I might end up being here for another 20 years and still be like, Nope, I'm not rooted here. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Any minute now, I could leave. It could happen. I could leave whenever I want. <laughs> um, and are you working on another book? I am. I actually have a collection of stories that, that's been finished for a while. And I also have a novel that um, I'm working on right now that, that's basically like the idea of the Flunner 
you know, I feel like there's a lot of Flaneur novels where it's like the, you know, guys walking around cities and being spectators. Yeah. But since like, you know, the, the one Flaneuse novel that I can maybe think of that's exciting is the, is Mrs. Dalloway maybe. Okay. So I'm really into like this idea of the Flaneuse. And so I have, what is this word? Why am I, I'm not, I'm ignorant to this word Flaneuse. So Flaneuse is just the female version of Flaneur. What's Flaneur? (laughs) (laughs) That was hilarious. So a Flaneur is like a, it's like a, it's an old French word that means like a stroller, like someone who walks around, loafs around. That's me. I'm a Flaneur. See, you're a Flaneur. Yeah. I like this. Now I have, now I now I have a fancy French name for what I do. See, you're set. <laughs> if you can just learn how to like sing in a falsetto, you can be a falsetto singer <laughs> and the world will just be your oyster. Oh my God. From, uh, from your lips to God's ears. Well, um, I, I mean, I feel like we covered a lot. Do you feel good about it? And we, we got everything. Yeah. Is there anything, yeah. is there anything pressing you'd like to talk about before we leave? No, not at all. You're like, please get me not- off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Not even one thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I certainly uh, appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and congratulations on uh, you know the success you had with your book, and I, I wish you luck with uh, you know the collection and the next novel. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, that is Runda Gerard. Go get her novel. It's out there now from Penguin, and it is called A Map of Home. You can find her online at rundagerard.com. She's on Twitter at Runda Gerard. Uh, it's spelled Randa. R-A-N-D-A, but it's pronounced Runda. She told me that. That's how I know that. She's also on Instagram. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get a free audiobook from Audible. Just visit audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. You do that, you can get a free audiobook download. What do you think of that? And hey, don't forget about the app, the free official other people app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. Do you hear me? It's the best way to listen and to access premium content and the full archives of the show. So here's what you do. You download the app for your mobile device. The app is free. And then from there, uh, you can listen to the most recent 50 episodes of this program for free. And then from there, here's what I ask of you. Sign up for premium right there within the app. You can sign up right there in the app. It's only $2. That's it. Two bucks a month. Support the program and get access to everything. Every single episode, including my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Tao Lin, Cheryl Strayed, Tayari Jones, Jess Walter, uh, Sam Lipsight, Susan Orlean, and many more. Okay? So uh, please do that. I would greatly appreciate it. And uh, I got to go. Can you hear the urgency in my voice? Can you hear the panic? Uh, I got to go run to my car. I will, I will lightly jog to my car. Then I will uh, key the ignition. And I will peel out. And I will fight traffic, and I will get to the west side. Does this mean anything to you? Do you care about me and my struggles? Please remember that Idolo Calvino died of a cerebral hemorrhage, and that James Joyce and Isaac Babel were once guests at the same dinner party. That is it for now. Thanks again to Runda Girard. Go get her novel. Thanks to Penguin. Or is it Random Penguin? I don't know what to call it anymore. And thanks to you guys, most especially, for listening. Uh, I will be back uh, on Wednesday with another show, another program, another episode, another conversation. You know what to expect at this point, I think. Right? Have we achieved a certain intimacy? Is that the right usage? Achieve intimacy? Is intimacy uh, intimacy something that uh, one achieves? 
Everything's about achievement. I feel like the word achieve sounds weird right now to my ear. Achieve. Like, like I can't believe that it has any meaning. Achieve. It just sounds like nonsense. And uh, incidentally, the other day I had this very same feeling about the words cart and mart. Cart and mart. I was like in the grocery store, walking around, thinking to myself, you go to the mart and you get a cart. I'm at the mart with my cart. Do you know what I mean? <laughs>